vanity of life. And he is figuratively preaching on the vanity of material wealth. And at the, at the very end, says the duty of man is to obey God, fear God, and obey his commandments. He is a preacher in that regard. And then the last one is the aguar. That means the collector. And if you look at that term in Hebrew, it means the collector of riddles. Now, you see many of these things in the book of Proverbs, but what's neat is Solomon is full of all kinds of uh, great wisdom. Yep. He collects these things, and God gave him such a wisdom that he had, so to speak, a lot of riddles to share. It's interesting sometimes when you read the book of Proverbs, you're like, man, is this a riddle or what? Not exactly in the Peshat. It's neat to see Solomon's wisdom. Kings and queens from all over the world came to view Solomon. And he was, in fact, so great that Jesus attests to his greatness. He says, hey, look, there was never a king like Solomon in his splendor, yet one greater than Solomon is standing before you. That ought to tell you something about how great Solomon was. Look, we will read tonight that Solomon was the greatest king that Israel ever had until we get to Jesus. When we see his introduction, we will get the impression that he ushered in the greatest era Israel ever experienced. Furthermore, we will be able to glean from very practical aspects of his life. Tonight's teaching is entitled, Start Well, Finish Better. Amen. Start Amen. Well, Finish Amen. Better. Hey, Justice Lintonius Maximus, would you please read the text? Yes. Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom. For the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Then Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in Israel, the heads of families, and Solomon and the whole assembly went to the high place at Gibeon, where God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses the Lord's servant had made in the desert. Now David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had prepared for it because he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar that Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was in Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the assembly inquired of him there. Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered God, You have shown great kindness to David my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge, that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire, if you have not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern our people over whom I have made you king, therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given you. And I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who is before you has ever had, and none after you will have. Then Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high place of Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also within in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar 
more fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cuba. The royal merchants purchased from, from the purchased them from They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. Man, look. 17 verses. This chapter is kind of short compared to what we've covered in the past, right? Yeah. I mean, we've done about nine chapters before. Yeah, and here we have 17 verses. And I promise you, there is more packed into these 17 verses than meets the eye. So, so Tony, so will you read verse 1 for us again as we go line by line for our 17 verses this evening? <laughs> Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom. For the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Amen. Look, you got to love Ezra's accounting of this. If you're familiar with kings, him establishing himself firmly over his kingdom was not a simple sentence. We're going to get into that and give you just a little background. We're not teaching kings tonight, but we do want you to be aware of what that looks like when the king is establishing himself. Now, when you hear the word establish, I think of a well-established business like the shop that has been around for over 20 years. Yeah. You think about tenure. You think about the size of the kingdom. You think about how well-known it is in the local community. This word is not established. It has related to it, but it is very, very different. And Ohad's going to love this one tonight. Pastor, would you we have this on the slide? Or? Don't think this one is Strong's number 2388. It's Kazakh. Now, our brother over here is going to cringe as we say this. But literally, what it, it is saying here is not that Solomon just established himself. That he kazaked himself. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's what the text says. That may bring to mind all kinds of terms for you, but all the men in the room will know what it means to be strong. Yeah. He had to gird his strength for what was about to happen. Amen. In fact, it's exactly what his father told him to do in Kings with the same word. To establish himself required something on the inside. It wasn't just on the outside. The man had to begin to steal his will for the task that was ahead of it. He's between 16 and 18 staring at a kingdom that he is supposed to rule and reign that still has hostile people in it. That still has a great project that he is not up to the task for and he knows it. His father's assessments helped him learn to find strength and he's stealing his will in this very moment. You know, but like Judah said, you've got to love the Ezra accounting of this passage. Because Chronicles opens up with the fact that he had to strengthen or kazak himself. What Ezra does not mention is very important for you to know. There's no mention of what Solomon did to establish his kingdom. And yet some of you Bible students will know what he did. Now, we're going we're gonna to look into exactly what that kingdom looks like. But first, I want to show you what he had to do to establish his kingdom. Do you guys want to look into that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to hand out a few passages, and we're just going to read them. We're not going to comment much, but we're just going to read them. Much. Uh, <laughs> Rob, you get 1 Kings 2, 22 through 25. Gabe. Now I got one for you, Gabe. Uh, Cody, 
You get 1 Kings 2, 26 through 27. Gabe, you get 1 Kings 2, 28 through 35. Uh, Nick Rosales, you get 1 Kings 2, 41 through 46. And that'll be it for now. And just go ahead and read and you're going to get the impression of what it really means for Solomon to establish himself. We've been talking about Solomon typifying the second coming of Christ, haven't we? You guys remember that? Well, we're going to kind of see a little bit in this of what that looks like. First Kings 2, 22-25. King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you request Abishag, the the Shunammite, for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he is my old brother. Yes, for him and for Abiathar, the priest, and Joab, son of Jeruah. So, so Adonijah, his brother, is asking for a certain woman. You get the impression that this woman is special, right? Mm-hmm. Solomon gets very angry. In fact, if you want to know more about that, talk to Nick Erigina, and he'll share you who, who exactly Abishag is. Keep going. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, May God deal with me, be it ever so severe, that Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. And now, as surely as the Lord lives, he who has established me securely on the throne of my father's day, and has founded a dynasty for me as he has promised. Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck down Adonijah, and he died. Yeah. You may begin to get the picture why Nolan and I both named sons Benaiah as we continue. Yeah. Who has the next passage? First Kings 2, 26 and 27. The Abbas are the priests, the king said, Go back to your fields in Anathal. You deserve to die. But I will not put you to death now, because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord before my father David, and shared all my father's hardship. So Solomon removed Abathar from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word of the Lord had spoken at Shiloh about the word of Eli. Come on, we want to tell you that the word of the Lord never returns void. It is never vain. It always comes to pass. It just may be a little while before it actually happens. Justin and I both love says, I will not put you to death now. He's not borrowing it from all future interactions. He's just saying, I'm not ready to do it yet. Go work your field and wait. Gabe, get 1 Kings 2, 28 through 35. When the news reached Joab, who had conspired with Adonijah, Uh-oh. though not with Absalom, he fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. King Solomon was told that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. Then Solomon ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, go strike him down. So Benaiah entered the tent of the Lord and said to Joab, the king says, come out. But he answered, no, I will die here. Benaiah reported to the king, this is how Joab answered me. Then the king commanded Benaiah, do as he says, strike him down and bury him. And so clear me in my father's house of the guilt of the innocent blood that Joab said. Shed. The Lord will repay him for the blood he shed. Because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked two men and killed them with the sword. Both of them, Abner son of Ner, commander of Israel's army, and Amasa son of Jether, commander of Judah's army, were better men and more upright than he. May the guilt of their blood rest on the head of Joab and his descendants forever. But on David and my descendants, his house and his throne, may the Lord's peace reign forever. 
So Benaiah son of Jehoiada went up and struck down Joab and killed him. And he was buried on his own land in the desert. You could stop right there. And you get the impression that Benaiah doesn't miss, does he? He was pretty accurate. Look, we've already had a wicked, evil brother that tried to ascend to the throne. We've already had a uh, failed priest that Solomon dealt with. And here we have Joab, probably one of the bravest and most skillful in war of all of David's army, and he gets put to death. You get the impression that when David was alive, all of these people were, were problems for David. They were enemies. There were things that were going crazy around David, but they were not finally put down. You get the impression that when Solomon takes the, the throne, this is no problem for Solomon at all. He puts these things to death completely and finally without hesitation. Who's got 1 Kings 2, 41 through 46? When Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned, the king son of Shimei said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you on the day you leave to go anywhere else? You can be sure you will die. At that time you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why you pause for just a moment? Backstory here is that Solomon showed this man mercy and said, If you prove yourself worthy and you keep my command, you're going to live. You're now hearing where he did not keep the command after just a couple of years and we're reaching a place of judgment. Keep going. Why then did you not keep your oath to the Lord and obey the command I gave you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father, David. Now the Lord will pay you for your wrongdoing. But King Solomon will be blessed, and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. Amen. Then the king gave the order to Benaiah, son of Shehadiah, oh, yeah, and he went did. out and struck Shimei down, and he died. The kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. Listen, there's all kinds of interesting things in this passage. Benaiah seems to play some kind of, uh, lack of a better word, terminator. Uh, everywhere he shows up, somebody's somebody ceasing to exist. All of this is intended to warn you that by the time the second coming comes, you do not want to be on God's bad side. The part that you need to pick up on, though, is at the end of verse 46, the kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. The very thing that his father instructed him to do, he asked him to steal his will and the kingdom. He needed strength. Remember, this guy is about 17 while this is going on. This progresses over a few years, but he is young and inexperienced. But he's being strengthened by the Lord's power, and he's putting to death the enemies that have lingered all throughout his father's time. We've been teaching for several weeks that David's reign typifies the state of Davidic warfare, where we're ridding the earth of God's enemies. Solomon's reign would typify the second coming of Messiah and usher in a reign of peace. And you just heard what you just heard. Now Solomon is here. The time of David's war season is over. We're not fighting armies. We're not fighting hostile powers. We're not fighting kingdoms and clashing against kingdoms. He's putting to death enemies that have been close, yeah. that have been around, yeah. that have been affecting all men for a very, very long time. David and his disciples are done fighting at this point. When Solomon's reign begins, every war has been fought and completed. But there's still enemies left from David's time that are lingering. Solomon puts them down with ease. They can't run any longer. These guys have been around since David's youth. He knew he should kill them at many times. And yet he didn't. 
But on his deathbed, he instructs his son to rid the kingdom of these enemies. In addition to that, he tells him to show kindness to men like Barzillai. There is reward and there is recompense in Solomon's hands when he comes. He is showing kindness to those that were faithful in dealing with those that were not faithful. Even adversaries that have been working behind the scenes. And he's ensuring that they end up in the lake of fire that they belong in. This is much like our faith. We are with the son of David. We are currently fighting the wars of the Lord. There will be a day coming. There is a singular day coming where a king of peace will deal with all lingering enemies. They will cease to exist. This speaks of past. This speaks of present and future salvation. We need to understand understand this, especially in the kind of times that we live in. We are between things that have happened that have been set into motion. But there is a day of finality coming, much like what we just read about with Solomon. Hey, everybody say... Past salvation, past salvation, present salvation, present salvation, and future salvation. Future salvation. Now, when most people talk about being saved, they always talk about it in a past tense kind of situation. Like when somebody comes to the church and they're excited that there's a bunch of Christians here who love the Lord and actually know the Bible, they say, "Hey, brother, when were you saved?" They speak of it as something that was done in the past. Which is true. Can anybody point to the day that you were saved? Yes. But can you also point to a day like yesterday? Or the day before where you were still saved? Yes. That's because you are still currently being saved every day. It is a current process. An ongoing process in your life. But the Bible just doesn't leave it there. The Bible also points to a day where you will be saved. Now that's very interesting because if you walk around saying, well, I was saved in 2008, then what's going to happen in the future? If you were saved in 2008, have you inherited or received everything that your salvation includes? Not at all. We've been learning a lot about the resurrection, about getting a new body. You haven't got that yet. And that is included in your future salvation. Look, we want to show you a few slides with scriptures so you can see biblically what it looks like past, present, and future salvation. Our first one. By the way, this is not new to you. Pastor Wade taught this. Pastor Matt taught this many times. Your past salvation. We've titled this slide being freed from the penalty. The penalty of what? Sin. Sin. In your past salvation. So when you say I have been saved. You are free from the penalty of sin. I want to read a few scriptures on that and just rifle through them for you. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. You see a past tense there? Oh, yeah. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. When did that happen? Well, the old you left. The day that you committed your life to Christ and He gave you a new heart. That is being freed from the penalty of sin. Galatians 3.27 For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Past tense. 1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. You have an imperishable seed inside of you. That is a seed that is growing and growing and will ultimately be fully complete when your imperishable seed is surrounded by an imperishable flesh. But let's continue on to the present day. That most 
pertains to us here right now because yeah. we are trying to walk out this thing daily. Yeah. So our next slide, we call this being freed from the power of sin. You were free from the penalty of sin. Now you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling and being freed from the power of sin reigning in your life. First Peter 1.9 says, For you, everybody say it with me, are receiving the goal of your faith. You're receiving it right now. The moment that you stand up for righteousness, you are receiving the goal of your faith. Philippians 2.12, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like a very present salvation that we are experiencing today. Amen. Romans 6, 11 through 12. Count yourselves dead to sin. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign. Now, if you didn't have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, if you were just saved at the past and everything was completed, why does Paul have to write, do not let sin reign? Because it's an ongoing process. Yeah. Romans 8, 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. But wait a second, I've been freed from the penalty of sin. Not if you don't fully conquer the power of sin in your life. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming. Well, how is it going to be kept blameless? By your daily walking out in repentance. 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. That is our present state of affairs. We have been saved from the penalty, yes. We are currently being saved from the power of sin, and we are growing up in our salvation. So we are currently fighting the wars of the Lord, seeing enemies put underfoot, preaching the name of that son of David. Now tonight, tonight we're conquering the Salomonic Age. Let's take a look at our next slide. Amen. Freed from the presence of sin. Amen. Amen. Penalty, not just the power, but it's totally absent. Yeah. Romans 8, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit at the closet grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Yeah. Romans 8 equates your sonship with actually being redeemed, where your bodies are completely transformed and sin is no longer present. As it stands, we have a deposit. As it stands, we are a first fruit, but it's not done yet. Our full adoption of sons will take place when you stand in a glorified body with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Come on. Thanks. Could this be more pertinent to our lives at this point? No. I'm longing for it to be swallowed up in victory. We know it will be. Come on. Romans 13, 11. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Thanks. This is a man who is filled with the Spirit of God, speaking to people who are saved. Why does he need to say it is near now? I thought it was already here. (laughs) It's because he is longing for the fulfillment of it, and he knows what is coming when the King of Peace returns. Ephesians 1.14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, the praise of his glory. 
Saints, when you take Romans 8, when you take 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 13, it's impossible to say that you've been fully redeemed if your body hasn't been. Our God is a God of totality. When He says He will redeem you, He doesn't mean a small part of you. He means all of you. Praise the living God for that. So you have to imagine yourself living in David's time. You're saying, look, we were saved from Saul. Now we are working out our salvation through David, putting down enemies daily. But we are longing for the reign of Solomon when every enemy will be put down forever. Look, our hope in this church, I don't know about the rest of Christianity. They might be hoping for candy land in the sky, Ferraris to drive around, better jobs, better whatever. Our hope in LCM is future salvation. It's future salvation. When the last lingering enemies will be destroyed by the coming king. Amen. I'm talking about those last lingering enemies that we cannot fully defeat, but it's our job daily to show dominance over. Amen. I'm talking about death. Yeah. I'm talking about sin. Yes. I'm talking about temptation. I'm talking about sorrow, Amen. rebellion, and demonic opposition. Yes. Those things are guaranteed to linger in your lives. You need to know that. Death is going to linger all around you. You're going to see death in your body a little bit as you get older. Sin is going to be present. Temptation will be present. Sorrow will be present. Rebellion, you're going to see it. There's always going to be demonic opposition. But there is a day coming where there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more temptation. Think about that. How many of you have struggled and struggled? Lord, I can't shake this temptation. But there will be a day coming where He will remove that temptation so far away from you that it won't even be a thought. We do not see this now. In fact, sometimes it appears these last enemies are taunting like Shimei, rebelling like Adonijah, and working behind the scenes like Joab more than we would like. But we know and believe that the Son of David is going to have ultimate victory. Amen. Now that we know what we know, how important is a message like rising righteousness that we learned on Sunday? This is how we act knowing that we will be saved in the future. This causes a daily faith to rise up in us because we know our future salvation is crystal clear and guaranteed if we walk it out now. If we can look back and see that we were freed from the penalty of sin, if we can look at our lives now and see that the power of sin is being rooted out of your life, then you know for sure that God will ultimately throw it away. He will cast it so far as the east is from the west. This is daily faith. We walk in this with daily rising righteousness, daily radiant hope, because we know the outcome. We know our future salvation is sealed. I want to talk to you tonight, and I want to tell you this is not macho bravado. You like to see men who are bold in their faith. You like to see men who are who are courageous like lions and they do not shrink back from fear. They have confidence knowing what God will do in the moment. You know how they know that? It's not just a macho bravado. It's not just so much that they don't care if they die or any of those things. It's because they know what happens when they die. This is not different personalities. Sometimes we look at people and we say, oh, that that brother's just got a different personality. I'm I'm more geared towards being loving and sweet and, and... Things like that. Cautious. I'm cautious. I like to use wisdom when I make decisions. I like to weigh things out, you know? Logic. Logic. This has nothing to do with it at all. 
This is about a brazen all-out hope that causes daily faith, holiness, and righteous deeds inspired by our future salvation. This is how we ought to live, church. It looks irresponsible and ridiculous, but men who have a faith in their future salvation don't care a damn whether they die. They don't care a damn whether their finances hit the bottom. They don't care a damn about how ridiculous they look because they know that when their body hits the floor, their soul will be with the Lord. And they know that they have a future salvation in store. Look, Ezra didn't record all of the things that we just read about for a very explicit reason. He wasn't fearful. He knew the end from the beginning, quite literally. It's like us reading Kings. He has the end of the story. I want to tell you about the faith of another man that had the beginning from the end. Then there's a story. Revelation 1, 8 through 10. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. I saved you, I am saving you, and I will save you. I am the beginning from the end. See, John had a revelation much like Ezra. He knew the outcome of the story regardless of how bleak it looks now. It wasn't a personality thing with John. He was called the Apostle of Love. And yet his faith was brazen. Saints, I suspect that when you believe something's a personality difference, when you think it's a calling difference, the reality is they just believe the Lord more than you do. I, John, your brother and companion in the sufferings in the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He possessed those sufferings. He owned those sufferings because they were his badges. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. John understood like Ezra what was to come. And it showed up in his daily actions. It showed up in his daily hope. He's old and stranded on an island, but he has a revelation. Saints, do you have a revelation of what is to come tonight? Lentonius, pick up in verse 2 for me. Then Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in Israel, the heads of families. Saints, I want to fill in just a little bit for you here. What it took to put those enemies down, something like four years is what most scholars agree on. In light of eternity, though, in light of eternity, in Ezra's eyes, in our eyes, the four years that it took to put those saints to death elapses in a single verse. Saints, there's a message in this for you. You are not going to remember these fearful moments if you just overcome. You'll end up on the throne of David just like Solomon did. Look, a millennium of building, ruling, and improving the earth. What you go through now is just a little glimpse. That in the historian's and the chronicler's eyes won't even make it into the text. Listen, some people talk about race cars. Some people talk about gardening. Some talk about fishing. Saints, that doesn't do it for me. I don't know about you. I'm excited about ruling and reigning with my king. About building things on this earth and anything else that he has in store for us. Solomon is about to build an empire like the world has never seen. Saints, we have the opportunity to stand with that king of peace in eternity if we suffer for a little while now and overcome. And all eternity is ahead of us. And it's not harps and rainbows. It's everything that you were made to do and you can do it at your fullest potential without the presence of sin. Now look, I get questions all the time from customers and other Christians that I meet. You, you go to Iraq? I mean, that's crazy. Aren't you concerned about your family back at home? No, not, not one bit. 
In fact, I know the final outcome of my salvation so well that I'm actually eager for it. Wait a second, that's financially reckless. Yeah, exactly. But I know when I hit rock bottom, the Lord's going to prop me back up. And I know that he will save me because he did it in the past. Are you starting to see how important it is to have that in your view? Yes. Important to know what is going to happen that God guarantees for you if you work out your salvation. It changes the way you live daily. Thanks. One quick note. It's not our subject matter this evening. But did you notice he's speaking to all Israel? Yeah. Nobody's divided. He has the commanders of thousands, of hundreds. He has judges. He has leaders, heads of families. I'm going to read to you out of Ephesians 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Wow. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. Huzzah. <laughs> you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. St. Solomon is addressing the men that are in front of him, but King Jesus will address his whole family, Amen. his divisions, his commanders, his leaders, both earthly and heavenly. There is a day we will be united only with the faithful. This is what is in view as Ezra is writing. He understands that this represents something in the heavens that will occur in the future. Amen. Brother, we pick up in verse 3. Yes, sir. And Solomon and the whole assembly went to the high place at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the desert. Now... Hold on a second. Why is he going there? I mean, the ark is in Jerusalem, right? And he knows he's going to build a temple. But what's the first thing he does after he's put to death all these enemies? He goes to the high place at Gibeon where the tabernacle is. Look, it's safe to say that Moses is still not done away with at this point. Even at the second coming of Christ, Moses is still not done away with. Oh, yeah. How many times did Jesus say, look, I did not come to abolish the law, but rather see it completed. Look, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And he was the walking, living, breathing Torah. Moses will never be done away with. In fact, you ought to view it as the foundation that everything else is built on. Now let's read in verse 4. We're going to get into this a little bit further. Now David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had prepared for it, because he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar that Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, had made was in Gibeon, in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the assembly inquired of him there. Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. So look, let's recap this just a little bit. We have him going to the tabernacle. We have him going to the bronze altar that for some reason Ezra wants to remind you exactly who built it. It's the exact same altar. He puts a thousand sacrifices on it. Saints, Solomon, when he has established the kingdom of God and is ushering in something new, not only does he go to the tabernacle, he faces the exact same bronze judgment altar that has been around since the time of Moses. You know, the things that are going to follow after this have to do with revelation. They have to do with Holy Spirit empowerment. We're a room filled with people that most would describe, I wouldn't self-describe, but as charismatics. Thanks. we want to remind you this evening, you want to see a revelation? You want the kingdom of God coming to earth? There is absolutely no way for you to get there without going through that same bronze altar. 
that you must face the judgment of God. That He is able to redeem you as you go through it. But going through it is the only way to get to the Holy of Holies. See, the ark, the ark was put in a different spot. You didn't have to walk past the bronze altar to get to it. Yet Solomon fully understood the plan of God that he could not approach the ark without having gone to the bronze altar. Mm. Saints, we want you to inherit the kingdom to come, but you're not going to do it without the bronze altar. Come on. You're not going to do it without having repetitively gone to the bronze altar. In fact, this evening, we're calling you to go to that bronze altar again so that you might receive the full revelation that God has for you. Solomon understood the plan of God, and he is going to build a temple of God on earth. But just like the law, that altar was still ordained, and he saw God's plan fulfilled. We are going to follow in that same path. Now look, you, you are well taught, so you know the answer to this question, but do we do away with the law? No. Not at all. Just like we don't do away with repentance before we go and worship. We do not do away with that. In fact, we always come. You should always come before worship ready to repent. That's why when we pray the tabernacle, where's the first place that we start? Gates of praise. Then we go right to the bronze altar. Why is it so hard to get into the presence of God? Because you had to go to a bronze altar. Look, we don't replace the old for the new. Luke 5.32 says, actually it's Luke 5.39, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. Look, there are new things happening. There are new things that are about to happen in Israel, but it is all built on the foundation of the old. The old is where we start. Everything has to be funneled through the foundation that God put it on. If it's funneled the other way, you get things backward, just like showing up ready to get into God's presence and you haven't yet repented. Now I want to share something. Today, the presence of God, the ark, the presence of God is found in the Messianic tent. That's David's tent. But the law still shows us how to walk rightly before him. Look, Jews, for the most part, can't get to the presence of God without coming into that Messianic tent. Because that is God's ordained plan. And yet, us charismatic Christians can't get into the presence of God without going to the law first. The law is what leads us to the presence. Pathway to the Lord requires you to face the bronze altar and it leads you to his very presence. You cannot skip that step. There is no hearing from the Lord without his original standard, original testimony. By the way, the Septuagint calls the tent of meeting the tent of testimony. You cannot go into the presence of God without going back to the original testimony. Sometimes if you want to get into the presence of God, you've got to go back to the original testimony that God did in your life. You have to go back to that original testimony and remember what the Lord did. The amazing thing about this, we have the tabernacle representing the law. We've got David's tent and we have a future temple. Both the tabernacle and David's tent where the ark dwells, will be found in the temple. Both of those things will be brought into the temple and combined. Wow. And most of the, both of those things have to be found inside of you. Come on. The law, the word, the bronze altar of judgment, and the very spirit of God have to be found just inside of you. Amen. Saints, it's an astounding thing. People want to find some way to enter into eternity without receiving Christ. They, they try to find some kind of wiggle room around it. And yet, we often will sit and say, hey, I found Christ. I don't need the rest of it. 
When the reality is God has called us to both have his testimony, his word, and the spirit of Christ alive inside of us. Mark 12, verse 24 says this. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Man, this is familiar to Acts students. It's familiar to those who've been through discipleship helps. But we need to consider, is some kind of strange charismatic mysticism taking the place of an honest reckoning between you and God in his house? Have you wondered why others have a connection or a revelation from the Lord? They just seem to hear from him so clearly. Why do you still have things that are not dealt with at the bronze altar? Mm. That are not reckoned with his word? Thanks. We need both. Yeah. yeah. We're at war. Yeah. These are this is a house of men that are sons and soldiers. Yeah. It's time that we pick up our full armament, that we pick up our full weaponry. We are going to see the Solomonic Age ushered upon this earth, and it's going to happen through us, Amen. David's men. We can't be legalistic Baptists without the presence of David's tent either. Solomon is consulting the bronze altar, and later he will go back to Jerusalem where the ark is and David's tent. He will soon begin to construct a house that is going to envelop both. We are the first fruits of that, that the law of God and his spirit might be embodied in us. Romans and Corinthians speak of us this way. Hey, do you desire to build a temple for, temple for God? Yes. Then you're going to have to start where Solomon did. You're going to have to start at the bronze altar, Amen. and then you're going to have to go back up to Jerusalem where the presence of God dwells. Mm. Hey, I want to put together a few concepts for you because we've been teaching on Moses' mobile tabernacle, David's tent, Solomon's permanent temple. Now we're equating it to some other things. I want to tie a few concepts for you. Come on. When we're looking at these three places... Just like we saw penalty, we saw the power, and we saw the presence of sin being rooted out, we also see three placements in history. We see the tabernacle of testimony. This initiated God's plan throughout humanity. The initiation of God's plan started with a mobile tabernacle where sacrifices would be made. Then we see David's tent. That is the transitional phase that gets to include the Gentiles. It's spoken of by Amos as a time where Israel would have the remnant of the Gentiles flowing in. Then we see Solomon's temple. That is the permanent house of completion where God's presence fills that temple and both elements are being brought into a permanent structure. Let's show our second slide. When we're thinking about these three placements, you've got to relate to these three placements by how the power of those things works inside of you. When we think of the tabernacle of testimony, We see the law, the Torah, the Tanakh. We see the Word of God working inside of us. When we see David's tent, we see where the ark dwells. That is the presence of God, the very Spirit of God inhabiting you, and that is the prophecy that you feel urging inside of you that you feel like has to come out so that the body knows it. Then we move on to Solomon's temple. That is the permanent dwelling place that houses both. Guess what that is? That is your new body that you will inherit that will be fully word and fully spirit together in one body. Walking it out rightly. The next one we have, those three places, but in the position in his plan. On a national level, we see the tabernacle of testimony representing Passover. We see what happened at the tabernacle. Sacrifices were offered. There was a bronze altar there. That relates in history to Passover. But it doesn't just relate to Jewish history. It relates to you too. 
That is your salvation. The moment that you come to the bronze altar, that innocent blood is shed and sprinkled on you because you were the one that sinned and you realized the guilt of your sin and then you washed in the labor. That is the moment of your salvation. And that happened to you in the past, but it could very well happen again and again and it needs to. That doesn't end. Then we have David's tenth phase. This is the moment of Pentecost on the Jewish nation. But for you, what does that mean? That is the moment that you are baptized in the Spirit. Now you were baptized in the Spirit. Have you been baptized in the Spirit since then? See, you can't have the tabernacle of testimony without David's tent. And you can't have David's tent without the testimony. This goes into Solomon's temple, which represents in the Jewish nation the Feast of Sukkot. You guys aware of the Feast of Sukkot, you know that it is the time when they practice the presence of God dwelling on the earth. This is the dwelling presence or the resurrection that we're hoping for. We are saved at Passover in our lives. We are filled at Pentecost in our lives. And we hope to experience Sukkot together at the resurrection of the Lamb. Are you starting to see all these concepts weave together? A promise of salvation and glorification was revealed in Genesis 12. But these items represent waypoints as that is unfolding, as we are experiencing it. We were all saved from the penalty of sin during the Passover experience at the Tabernacle of Testimony. This is the time you personally were born again, that this was rolled away from you, that Saul no longer reigned in your life. You remember going through that in Samuel? You with us? You feel that moment? Oh, yeah. More than that, we are being saved from the power of sin as David's tent and his presence are manifest in our life. Man, I am more free from sin than I was two years ago, and I'm proud to say that. I still got a long way to go, but his power is diminishing and David is rising. We will be saved from the presence of sin as the permanent structure that is being built is unveiled and all of us are transformed into what we are called to be. God wanted us to be able to see the progression of his kingdom. A promise was made in Genesis 12. It began to manifest at the tabernacle where the penalty was relieved. We have Passover. It moved to David's tent. We're in the book of Acts. The apostles recognized the same thing was happening again. We're in a time period of transition. Saul is dying. Something is rising. And we are waiting for the fulfillment of Solomon's temple. But it surely will happen. Here you see three problems dealt with at three places. You see sin. You see the Spirit of God filling you. And you see the resurrection being dealt with in three places. Now I want to talk to you about historical uh, placement where we are right now. Right now, we are at the same place that was spoken of in Acts 15. Think about that. 2,000 years ago, and we're still doing the same thing that the apostles were doing in Acts 15. We are placed at the position of David's tent as spoken about by the apostles in Acts chapter 15. We are in the season of joyful warfare. Everybody say joyful warfare. Joyful warfare. We are in the season of joyful warfare, being led and filled by His Spirit to fight the Lord's battles. We were saved at Passover. We were filled at Pentecost. Now we are fighting to see that temple built on the earth. We are the plunder that the Son of David has taken. We are the mighty men with David. And we are also the materials He is building with all at the same time. Yeah. This is where we're at. We are building a temple. Look, Zechariah 4, 6-7 through says, I'm going to hand out a couple after this. Who wants to read? i got two scriptures. I'll read. read. 
AJ. You guys like it when AJ reads? Yeah. yeah. AJ's going to read 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Then we're going to have Nolan read Revelation 21, 1 through 5. I'm going to read to you Zechariah 4, 6 through 7. And this is on the topic of joyful warfare. Anybody need a little joyful warfare in their life? I want to tell you, warfare is good for the body. It teaches you how to be joyful. Zechariah 4, 6 through 7 says, So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out capstones to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. They were engaged in the very same thing we're engaged in, building another temple. And God spoke to him, he says, not by might, not by your own power, but by my spirit filling you, you will build that temple. Any of you staring at some mountains in your life that you need to see leveled? That is only by the word of God filling you when you are at the bronze altar and the spirit of God dwelling inside of you. It is not by your own strength, not by your own power, not by your own looks, not by the well-crafted beard that you wear on your face. It is by the spirit of God dwelling in you to level a complete mountain that looks impassable. I want to tell you, we're staring at some mountains in this place, but the Spirit of God can crush those mountains through our perseverance. Hey, what's 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6? AJ. you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built. Saints, don't let your familiarities keep you from having an increased view of this verse. Saints, we've listened to this. We've heard it. We've heard it in previous Monday nights. But can you begin to see it? As you are being built into this house. The reality is this has not happened yet, but it will happen. Peter even says in other places that we speed the coming of God by our actions. Your deeds are causing that Solomonic age to usher in on the earth. And what a task and what a joy that our warfare now with the son of David in Acts 15, in this age of transition that we're in, you are making sure Solomon inherits his throne and actually affecting the time frame. Come on. Come on. Consider the things that you were tempted to slack off on. How long would you like to wait for Christ to come back? How long would you like to delay it for your children? How long would you like to delay it for those that are suffering around the world in patient endurance? Saints, I think it's time that we hurry up and get our job done. Yeah. I'm thankful for those that have gone ahead of us, but we still have days that are long and hard, but glorious in front of us. Amen. Who has Revelation 21? 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Come on, Nolan, say that again. For the old order of things has passed away. Come on, say it again, Nolan. For the old order of things has passed away. Man, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. Man, that's going to be a good day, isn't it? Yes. Keep reading. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Right. Write this down, because you're going to have to know what you're fighting for. Yeah. Amen. Look after all the joyful warfare. We will receive the full salvation we're waiting for. But our joyful warfare is what's going to get us there quicker. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we learn to praise before and during the battle. Amen. Because we know that we will praise after the battle with all of our friends. Man, when that time comes, when Solomon finally takes the throne, he's going to put to death all the last enemies. And then we're going to praise together. Amen. Solomon will be coming with all of his established strength. Heads are going to roll. Yeah. <laughs> we fight the enemies that are before us now, and he's going to take care of the last ones. Hallelujah. Yeah. You ever hear anybody say, look, do all you can, and God will take care of the rest? Mostly not biblical, but in this sense, it is true. You do everything you can to fight, and he's going to finish the last ones. Look, here we're going to start to see some things. Solomon has a tremendous start. He consults the bronze altar. Man, that's amazing, isn't it? He's a king, and he starts at the bronze altar. That's where kings start, as at the bronze altar. And he makes sacrifices there. This is where we all must start, but we can't just start well. We've got to finish well. Amen. Amen. Hey, brother, would you read verse 7? That night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Saints, this is quite the open-ended question. <laughs> this is the first record of the Lord appearing to Solomon. Catch this. Hear me, you church brats. He grew up under the Davidic house. But this is the first time the Lord appeared to him. Yeah. This wow. ought to be calling to mind the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom the Lord appeared to after their father was gone. There's something of a covenant that is being renewed. The Lord is seeking to find out what is in his heart. He wants to know what he wants. Look, God has the ability to find out anything that he wants to know. And he finds out what is in a man's heart by the way that you act. Statements like he knows my heart. Yeah, he does. He watches your deeds. Read verse 8, Linton. Solomon answers God, You have shown great kindness to David my father and have made me a king in his place. Now wait a second. We've got to pause on this verse. God just asked Solomon, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And the first thing that Solomon answers back is you have shown great kindness to David my father and have made me king in his place. Come on. Look, we're going to camp out here for a little while, so you need to buckle up and get ready for it. Ready. Ready. 
Solomon begins to answer the Lord and makes one of the most important observations that deserves to be looked at carefully. The very first place that Solomon starts is by the kindness that God showed his father, David. That is an important observation, isn't it? Before he asks the Lord for anything, he acknowledges that the only reason he is in that position is because of the kindness that God has shown his father. The only reason Solomon is where he's at is because of what God has shown to his father. This cannot be understated enough. So many of us think that we're where we're at because we pulled up our boots by the bootstraps and we went and did what we had to do. And it's not true at all. None of us get where we are at by ourselves. None of us is an island unto himself. As much as you would like to think that you're at, you're at where you are at because of your own perseverance, because of your own diligence, it's not true. That's a good word. You are at where you are at because there has been a father in your life that God has shown kindness to. That is the only reason that any of us is here. Can you honestly say that you would be here doing well if there had not been a father that God has shown kindness to? The only way it is possible for Solomon to be there is because of his father. Because of his father's devotion. Because of his father's heart for the Lord. That is how Solomon got to where he's at. And he is a king, but he's not there in his own strength. We want to hand out a few scriptures on that topic. Steve Thomas, get Genesis 26, 2 through 3 for me. Nick Aragina, Exodus 3, 4 through 6. Nick Rosales, 1 Samuel 2, 27 through 28. Paul, 2 Chronicles 34, 1 through 3. Then we'll push pause there for a bit. Start reading when you get it. Genesis 26, 2 through 3. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. Saints, I want you to wrestle through this for a minute. We think about the patriarchs, and we're like, yes, they are the example of faith. And yes, they are the example of faith. I want to affirm that this evening. Forgive me, but what the heck has Isaac ever done? When we pick up here, the most notable thing about Isaac is he didn't freak out too bad when his dad brought him up to an altar. Never accomplished anything in his life. Much like the examples that we used with Solomon. He has not got a track record of diligence, a track record of faith. He is not his father. And yet the Lord still chose to appear to him. The Lord reaffirmed a covenant with him, gave him instructions, looked to see what was in his heart and began to develop him. Isaac had not done a single thing in this point in his life. He's being blessed solely because of his relationship to a father that had been poured into him. Saints, I want you to think about your Christian walk as we say that. Who has Exodus 3? I do. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
Then he said, I am the God of your father. Your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Man, he says, I am the God of your father. <laughs> Forgive me, but what the heck did Moses do that deserved that kind of encounter? Yeah. I mean, how did he even get there? He murdered a man and ran to go hide in the desert. And because of the blessing that was on his father, God appeared to him. God is showing Moses favor and kindness solely based on the way of the life of his father, Abraham. Now think with me for a second. How many of you have thought that God has brought you here because you have such great ministry talents and God's going to refine that and send you out? Yeah, I've thought that before. Yeah. <laughs> The truth I, no, is, no, no, no. you guys who are laughing, <laughs> you're full of it. I know you're full of it. <laughs> Don't laugh at two or three people in the room that are honest enough to say that. These pastors know you, and they're in the room. So don't lie. They're like being on a, a lie detector test. <laughs> Judah and I won't call you by name, but Matt was about to stand up and do it. <laughs> I made Look, a note on that. <laughs> do you think you come here because you've got some kind of great ministry that just needs a cherry on the top to succeed? The truth, the truth is, is none of us came to LCM with a lot going on for us. We came to LCM because we were struggling to actually walk out our own salvation. And it is because of the blessing of our fathers that the Lord is training us up. You just got 1 Samuel 2, 27 through 29. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than, more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Saints. Hear me for a moment. Eli is a wicked man that received an inheritance because of who his father was. Yeah. Yeah. Scrolling in the back of some of your minds is, hey, I was born again before I came to LCM, man. I was filled with the Spirit before I came to LCM, man. I had a calling before I got here. Yeah. This is one of those rare instances in church where I'm telling you not just to think about yourself. If that's not what's scrolling through your mind, think about the people that you know that think that way. Yeah, what you did is you were born into the kingdom. That's about as useful as Eli. He was born into the kingdom of God. He had mercy on his life because of the fathers that had gone before him. But you being born before you came to LCM is not going to do a damn thing for you. You being born into the kingdom, you will die as an infant, one who's accomplished nothing, and in the end goes down as wicked and doesn't know how to be a father yourself. Eli never learned from his fathers the right way to live, despite the fact that he had kindness shown to him. And you know how wretchedly it showed up in his sons? They were worse than he was. Yeah. And God cursed them all together because of that negligence. His lineage would eventually disappear, which we just read about in Kings. His great-grandson does not continue because of his wickedness. But God gave him a a chance through his father Aaron. He showed him kindness, gave him a priestly office. Tell me what you ever did to inherit a priestly office. And yet Peter just said you were born to a royal priesthood. So don't let the lie inside of your mind or anyone else's 
The fact that I was born again before I walked in, the truth is you would have wasted your life and damned your own children without the fathers <laughs> yeah. in this house. For sure. He would screw it up. It's the truth. Eli was not going to make it because he did not continue in the way of life of his father Aaron. Look, we have the opportunity to continue in the way of life that has been given to us as a gracious promise. But I'm about done tolerating this idea that you came into LCM and had most of what you needed and somebody else helped you out along the way. Particularly when you're looking at these men. I assure you, you just don't know enough to realize the distance between your character and theirs. I've been there from the beginning. I've watched it. They're not Eli, but you will end up that way if you continue in that path. I want to encourage you as our family this evening. Don't put up with speech that sounds that way. Amen. Not from anyone. Amen. Regardless of what race, nationality, or clique you're from. You don't put up with it. Well, we say, of course, and yet somehow we have these little allegiances where because we all speak Spanish or because we're all from this part of town, we tolerate those things. Come on. I'm done with it. These men are worth respecting and worth learning from because it will save your life. Yeah. Who has Chronicles? Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. Walked in the ways of who? His father. His father. Not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. Wow. Hey, how old was Josiah when he became king? Do we have any eight-year-olds? No? AJ, how old are you? Five. In three years, she will be the same age as a boy that became king over all Israel. And guess what? In the eighth year of his reign, so what's eight plus eight? Sixteen. Sixteen. He was 16 years old, and he began to seek the God of his father, David. Wow. At 16 years old, he was able to recognize that God had shown kindness to his father, David, and so he began to seek the God of his father, David. 16 years old, and he realized that. And yet we have like 35, 40, 45-year-olds who just can't figure it out. Like, I don't know why. I can't seem to have a good conversation at lunch with the pastors. It's because you don't realize God's kindness on them. Look, his father David gained God's kindness by walking like his father. David gained kindness because David walked like his father, Abraham. Perhaps God's kindness... And I'm going to say perhaps God's kindness is on LCM because we have, we are walking under the direction and teaching of fathers who have found God's kindness. Perhaps what you see here is here because kindness has been shown on our fathers and we are walking in it. You know, perhaps God's kindness is not on you individually because you do not walk in the way of your fathers and don't recognize it. You ever wonder why everybody else around you seems to be moved and blessed by the exact same thing, but somehow you just you just can't can't work with it. You keep finding some kind of reason why you got to separate. Why you are the most exalted individual that the world has ever met. Saints, we need to square up with the bronze altar tonight. Yeah, come on. It's time that we get that right so that we can actually enter into the presence of God. I want to tell you a little secret in Christianity. You get to pick who your father is. You didn't get to choose who you were born to in the flesh, but you do in the spirit. He brought you to this house to be born into a new life. The fact that he allowed you to come to him beforehand does not mean you don't need the father that God has placed in your life. In fact, if you reject the father God placed in your life, it might show that you're the son of another father. And that is the devil. 
Look, you are at you at LCM are privileged to have so much. Can we just acknowledge that tonight? We are privileged to have so much at LCM. There are Christians laboring in India and they don't have a eighth of the teaching that you have. There are Christians in China who are dying for their faith and they don't have an eighth of the prophecy that you heard at the last worship service. You are privileged to have so much. You enjoy the rich teaching of the word. Many of you have found your function in the kingdom in this building. Many of you have learned to walk in God-given gifts since you have come to LCM. Any of you have, have experienced or learned that you've got a gifting from the Lord and you've learned how to walk in that gifting? Yes. Sitting right here under the direction of fathers. Yes. You are experiencing these things because of God's kindness to Elder Charlie, Amen. because of God's kindness to Elder Baj, because of God's kindness to Elder John, Amen. Elder Eric, Pastor Matt, and Pastor Wade. Yes. They were there before you. They were there walking it out years before we ever met. And God showed kindness to them and allowed them to build what we are standing in today. We have so much debt to these fathers in our lives. We owe them everything. God has shown his kindness to these men by working inside of us. In the same way that God showed kindness to David by working through his son Solomon. And honestly... What many of you, why many of you have been drawn to this place is that you see it. That you realize that something is growing. That something is alive here. I want to ask you to treat it as precious. I want to ask you to not allow anything in your mind to separate you from it. Not to slack off. Not to relax. To go headlong after what God has provided for us. And through that, God is showing kindness to the men that have poured into us. You want to be kind to those that have invested in you? Do something with what they gave you. Amen. Without God's kindness to these men, none of us would be here. And if we did not learn to walk in the same way, God's kindness will stop to them. It will stop to us and them. We need fathers, and fathers need sons. Amen. We've preached on this so many times, and yet our culture, our sinful way of thinking, needs it. We have to learn to think differently. It's not about you. It's not even about you and your family. It is about the way of life that we've been called to that is embodied by the men that God placed in front of you as a gift out of Ephesians 4. Captives that were rescued from the enemy and given to you to show you how to live. Prove yourself to be a son. Without God's kindness, other men throughout the scripture that we are going to read about in 2 Chronicles do not continue in the way of their father David and their life is epitomized by ruin by misery and leading people to idolatry. All the anointing in the world, all the position in the world, they were kings among men. And yet what they did is they led people into darkness. I want to tell you whatever talent you think you have, whatever calling you have, makes you a liability when it is not under your father's direction. I don't think I have to name names for those of you who've been here a while to think in the past five years, some of the most anointed men in the world are leading people astray on a daily basis right now. Ask Ahab, ask Rehoboam, ask Manasseh, ask Asa, who started well and finished so poorly. Ask Zedekiah or Azariah. Each of these men did not finish well because they failed to follow their father's example. Solomon stopped kicking against David's honest assessment. He was thankful for it. He began to strengthen himself. The list of the pastors in the one association is something we want to show you tonight. Amen. Brent Vincent. Gary Guzman, Buddy Grasso, Mike Hutchinson, Cason Schubert, 
Justin Johnson, Eric Treister, Nick Slaughter, Nick Massey, Lamb, Zach Lamb, Jake Womack, Matthew Kilo, Wade Sutherland, and Eric Stevens. Saints, I want to tell you this evening, each of these men are extraordinary. They are men that are leading other men and raising up the body of Christ at large. Not one of these men would be here without the fathers in this house. They would not be doing yep. what they are doing without the fathers in this house. Yep. There's a funny thing that happens. Those that receive the least, that are the least difficult to pour into, often end up doing most for the kingdom of God. Those of you that want to be operating in ministry should remember it's not their job to chase after you. The fact that they're willing to work with you, they're willing to press in is because Christ is at work inside of them. There is not a single member here that would be here without LCM. This would not exist. Their ministry, the lives that are being touched without the fathers in this house. Matthew Pirro, Wade Sutherland, Eric Stevens, Elder Charlie, Elder John have produced that. By God's kindness, they are reigning as kings in the way that they are called to be and it is honoring these men. We have an obligation. We cannot go on in our own way and pretend that somehow we're going to be blessed even though we ignore the words of the law. We cannot continue our own way and expect that we will achieve the same results as those who have gone before us. Hey, I remember when Brent Vincent came to this church. He had only an inkling of a calling. He had an inkling of an understanding of what that calling was. And look where he's at now. He is leading a ministry in the largest Muslim country in the world. Where did that revelation develop? Where did that teaching, where did that character in him develop? Right here under the direction of God's kindness to our fathers. I remember when Zach Lamb first found out he was called to work with his brother Zeke. He came right up here to this altar and he cried out to God. You know how he got to where he is today? Under the directions of fathers like Matt Pirro, who instilled in him and taught him how to work in teams and lead ministries. Look, you can burn this house down, you can abandon it because you don't like what you see, but you cannot deny the results. What the kindness that God has shown to these fathers actually works. And we're asking that you stick with it. Hey, I'm going to read to you Philemon 8 through 11, and Justin's going to comment on it. Then we'll go further down in the passage. You guys ready? Yes. Therefore, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. <laughs> Yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, yeah. who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. Come on. Paul called him his son. He became Paul's son while Paul was in chains. Man, don't worry about bothering your pastors. Just go. If you want, if you need pastoring, go. Be bold in your discipleship. Go to your fathers and say, I need some help. That is how you become a son. It says about him, formerly he was useless. But now he has become useful. Look, this man was a slave who was useless. But he became useful through fathership. Amen. Look, I want to say, I have no shame in saying it. Sometimes there are young men 
running around in the church who are pretty darn useless to the body. But they become useful through fathership. Amen. That is what fathership does, is makes them useful. Now, as we appeal to you in love, and use the young men as the example, if you take the inference that you need without me saying it, regardless of the color of your hair, without fatherhood, you are useless. But you become productive in the kingdom regardless of your age when you understand fatherhood in the spirit that is not based upon your physical age but it's based upon the maturity and the spirit you need. Well, I just feel so useless to the body. Find a father and become useful. Amen. I don't feel like I have anything to contribute. Probably because you need a father to show you what you can contribute. Amen. That's a good word. Look, I'm going to read the, the remaining verses in Philemon. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. Look, Paul can send him back because he succeeded in learning Paul's way of life. That's what fathership does, is you learn a way of life. Verse 17 through 19. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Yeah. <laughs> How could Paul say that? Because yeah. Paul probably became a father to Philemon. Yeah. And Paul's working out an issue between two brothers. Yeah. Look, fathers in this house, you owe them your lives. Yeah. You would not be anything without the fathers. Pastor Matt, Pastor Wade, Elder Baj, Elder Eric, Elder Charlie, Elder John, you would be nothing. They're the ones. We like Psalms that say, He picked me up from on high and He cleaned me up. He took me out of the miry clay and set my feet upon the rock. And how did He do that? Through the fathers in your life. <laughs> yes, it's God's hand, but it is their hand extended to you. Look, Paul can say this because this man would not be there where he is at if it wasn't for Paul. This isn't a slight, derogatory, or demeaning comment because we all need these men. We just need to admit it. Look, I owe these men my life and I'm not afraid to admit it. I'd be nothing without them. I tried to do what many of you want to go do. I tried to go to Africa and minister on my own. I thought I was a great missionary, but you know what I did? Fell flat on my face, and God showed me that I needed fathers. That is what we need. It's not derogatory to admit that. Just admit it. I need my fathers, and my fathers need me. Admitting that we are nothing without our fathers is the first step to maturity and growth. Once you realize that, it frees you up to actually learn what you need to learn. Another thought, just for processing. How will we father sons if we can't learn from our fathers? Chew on that for a minute. Look, we want to show you a slide, and this is, we don't have time to read every single one of these, but you'll see the large number of things listed, and these are just simply benefits you inherit from fathers in this room. Look, so you're going to see there are 25 things that are listed. This is not because we took a Greek word or a Hebrew word and searched out every reference that was possible. This is literally just top of the mind, walking from Genesis to Revelation, things that impacted us the most, that the Bible clearly declares come from a father-son relationship. Listen, the more that we think of ourselves as sons and soldiers, what does that make your fathers? Both fathers and commanders. They're there for a reason, so that you accomplish your tasks and succeed in your mission. The things that are listed here are available. If you want to go through it in notes, we could have listed 700 ones. Yeah. We could have done 70. 
We just picked 25 because that's what came to mind without doing any actual work because we want to get to other things. Listen, this is pervasive in the Word. If you don't understand this, it's because you are not applying your mind to Christ and you haven't gone through the bronze altar. Hey, by the way, Judah, what does the Torah, Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim say happens if you curse your father? I'm pretty sure you die like 14 times in the law. You die. It's interesting that that is a principle that is applied today in this body. If you do not show proper weight and honor to your fathers who are discipling you, you die spiritually. This is the way of life shown to us in the Bible. And heck, even nature testifies to it. I mean, what animal doesn't have a daddy? Everything has a father. We all have to have actual people who are God's kindness that teach us. This is so true that it even applies at the highest level of Jew and Gentile relationships. Hey, Judah, would you read Romans 15, 26 through 27? Gladly. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Look, we owe it to them because they were first. Just like we owe it to our fathers because they were first. They were taught, punished, praised, and elevated before we ever thought about becoming a Christian. Our older brothers Israel were taught, punished, praised, and elevated. And we can learn from that. They received God's kindness first, and we receive it because of them. Because of what the Jews have done. Because of God's kindness on the Jews. Us Gentiles are here. We owe it to somebody. We owe them, and we will not succeed without them. We owe these fathers our very lives, and we will not succeed without these fathers in our lives. Tonight, you have to get that into your soul. Amen? Amen. Hey, Brother Linton, what's verse 9 say? Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Listen, I want you to pick up on a few things here they are going to build. Solomon refers to them as a people. A people that are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Solomon's request shows that he knew that the promise was ongoing. That not everything was fulfilled yet. Consider Abraham's promises. They're numerous, but they're still very much so like dust. And he's responsible for managing them. That's quite the task if you've ever had a few three-year-olds. Imagine an entire nation that you're responsible for every sinful action that they commit. When the Lord chose David, he knew that Solomon was going to be the, uh, the son that would succeed him. Consider that. In light of God's ultimate sovereignty in the way in which Solomon came into being, he is able to bring about what is good for those that love him and cause his plan to succeed. God always planned and knew that the imperishable would be swallowed up by the uh, the perishable would be swallowed up by the imperishable. And it would start with the Davidic lineage. Solomon is forecasting something that is going to come through his great, great, great grandson. The Davidic lineage and the people were not glorified yet, but we're seeing inclinings of it. Just to recap a bit, do you guys remember last week when we saw in the Psalms about how the same words are used for the Davidic king and God? Yeah. The Davidic lineage was always forecasted to be divine. What's interesting about that, think through that for a second. Israel asked for a king, and God says, look, it's not time for you to have a king. But it says earlier in Deuteronomy, when the people asked for a king, this is what he should do. So God always knew that there would be a king over Israel, 
There would be a king through Judah, and yet they asked for the wrong king. Through God's sovereignty, he raised up the right king, and that's David. Through David, David had some failures, didn't he, with Bathsheba? But guess what? Bathsheba had a son named Solomon who would be king. God was always projecting through problems and failures that this lineage would become divine. And you see that in the Psalms. You also see it in Jeremiah 30 that says, In that day they will worship God and King David. The projection was that the lineage would always be divine. And Solomon knew that. He knew that the lineage and the people were not glorified yet. And that's why he's saying, You have made me a king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. He knows that that has to continue until there is a glorified people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth with a glorified king reigning over them. Are you starting to see some connections here? Brother Linton, verse 10. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Amen. Listen, we all know this is the right answer to the question because we've heard it preached on a thousand times. Uh, I want to tell you that personally, this passage is convicting to me. A little bit like Romans 7, I want to want what is right. But I know that inside of my own heart, I'm not entirely pure and I'm trying to be a good king and a good shepherd. Trying to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to me. Listen, I want to tell you that knowing the right answer to this is not sufficient. Pastors, elders, fathers, and husbands. God has given you dominion over things. And it is our job to rule it with the kind of heart that he has for his flock. Knowing the answer is not the same as having a heart that is like this. Solomon did not know how this was going to play out. But he did know that the task was beyond him. And that he just wanted to do it right. Can somebody say, I want to win? I want to win! This is what it takes to win. I'm going to read to you out of Proverbs 27, picking up in verse 23, and we're going to go through 27. Actually, somebody read it for me. I will. I'm going to take it line by line, Nick. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. Listen, this is a favor to pass away for a very good reason. Be sure you know the conditions of your flock. Why? Because you are responsible for them. You're responsible for them in your workplace. You're responsible for them in ministry. That is why it is such a scary thing to have the position that these men do. Know the condition of your flock. You have to have a heart that says, I just want to win. I want to be a good king. I want to be pleasing to you. I don't want all of these other things. I'm not asking for all of these other things. With a purity of devotion that says, I just want to do it well, Lord. Next verse. For riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. Solomon's sons are going to find out that this verse is very true. That a crown is not secure for all generations. That riches do not endure. The riches that we receive from Christ and our fathers are ones that must be tended to carefully. That must be passed on and must be free of selfish influence, of carnal desires, and filled with the purity of God that wants to win and be a good king. Verse 25. When the hay is removed and new growth appears, and the grass from the hills is gathered in. Saints, this is biblical imagery. These men were shepherds, they were farmers, they were warriors, and they were priests. They understood what this looks like. What was good enough two weeks ago is not good enough now. New growth 
new grass must give way. It was good for a time, but you have to continually peel those things back and grow in Christ. Come on. The flock that's been entrusted to you must grow in Christ, or we are not being the shepherds that we are called to be. Come on. But when we have a pure heart and are asking Him to help us accomplish it, not better our own lives, He is faithful to do so. He will show us how to remove that dead grass from our hearts and the hearts of those that are entrusted to us. Nick, will you get 27 and tw- or 26 and 27? Yes. The lambs will provide you with clothing, and the goats with the price of a field. You will have plenty of goat's milk to mm. feed you and your family, and to nourish your servant girls. Saints, the ideas that are being conveyed here, that when you do this well, when you shepherd with the heart of David, with the heart of God, that your only desire is that I want to please you. He promises you're going to have enough for your own family. But much more important than that, the pagans are required to do that. That you will have enough for the servants, for the disciples, for the people that are attached to your home. That is a promise. Tonight I want us to take stock in whether or not our emotions, our heart, our desires are actually as pure as we think. Listen, if you respect me, if you love me, I want you to consider that I honestly cannot say that my only desire is that. But I am working at it, and I am running to the bronze altar. I'm breaking it up. I'm not going to leave it like it is. If that's true of me, you ought to consider whether or not it's true of you. We're going to get to verse 11, and you're going to see this grow and grow. But before we do, I want to read to you Matthew 6, 33 through 34. It says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all all these things will be given to you as well. Now, if I'm honest about my own heart's assessment, usually I only pray this or say that scripture when I'm being presented with something I want. Usually when I'm being presented with something that I really want, I go, ah, no, Lord, I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and then you will give me these things. You get what I'm saying? Solomon had the heart. He knew the condition of his flocks. He had one chance to ask for anything. And he's asking for wisdom and understanding to lead his people. And this is not just saying the right answer. Many of us, because we know what Solomon asked for, we're like, if the Lord gave me a chance, I would ask for the same thing Solomon. And except when you're presented with getting something that you really want, where does your heart tend to fall? Hmm. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of his own. Look, Solomon asked for the greatest thing anyone can ever ask for. And the reason he did it is because he knew the condition of his flocks and he cared about the people God put him over to lead. Solomon is asking selflessly for the sake of his people because he wants them to inherit their own promises. He wants the nation as a whole to fulfill its destiny. He asks for the ability to lead them rightly, not for the absolving, of any duty or effort. He doesn't ask for ease. doesn't exas- ex- uh, ask for comfort. He asks for the ability to do it better. Amen. 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 Let's say, would you pick up in verse 11, and you're going to see the beauty of Solomon's heart here. Come on, man. God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire. Since this is what? Your heart's desire. This wasn't a prefabricated prayer of Jabez that Solomon was praying. This was actually his heart's desire. And that's why God, when you ask the Lord, you don't get what you want because we ask with wrong motives. James says that. 
When we actually write, uh, ask with right motives, the Lord is faithful to give us. Amen. Keep reading, brother. And you have not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies. Man, I would ask that sometimes. <laughs> Lord, would you just take them all? Man. Just kill them all. Does it make it easier on me? <laughs> Keep going. And since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people, over whom I have made you king. Now look, before we get into the rest of Solomon's answer, we want to note that Solomon starts by saying, look, you placed me over a people. Then he says, this people, this great people of yours, I have to govern rightly. But then God responds and says, my people over whom I've made you king. God's response is, these are my people and I have placed you over them of king. That reminded me of 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to get this concept. It says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. We are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. Look, Solomon mentions a people, then this people of yours, showing that he understood they were not his to govern over. That's a huge difference. How many things in your life that God has given you, you think that, what's well, mine? God gave it to me. It's all mine. But God made Solomon king over his people, but Solomon was only a servant that God placed. He was a king, and in fact, he'll be one of the greatest kings that was ever in Israel, and yet he was still a servant at the same time. So many of us want to be kings, but we don't realize that God's kings are actually servants. Yeah. Amen? Amen? You want to be a king? We have to start with being a servant. Amen. One more verse on that topic that relates to the actual land of Israel is Leviticus 25, verse 23. The land must be, not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Saints, when you consider our Deuteronomy 32 worldview, that the nations were divided up and there was one land and one people that belonged to him, there is not a chance that 2,000 years later he has given up that land. That land belongs to him. It is his possession. Any land, any people that are entrusted to you, you are but an alien and a tenant that is in the service of Jesus Christ. Solomon understood this better than most American pastors do. It's their church. Or it's my family. No, saints, you don't have a family. You have a family that he allows you to be the governor over. That he allows you to take care of and teach these children. Brother Linton, will you pick up for me in uh, verse 12? Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given you. And I will also give you you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had and none after you will ever have. Wow! He asks with the right heart, and God also says, I will give you wealth, riches, and honor. Man, that's amazing, isn't it? But we all have to ask ourselves, if we were put in that position, what would you ask for? Honest assessment, what would you ask for? Would you ask for the death of your enemies? To be honest, on some days I would. Sometimes the fire gets a little bit hot and I just want it to die down. Would you ask for wealth because you see your bank account hitting zero? Would you ask for riches? Because nobody really, you know, honors you like you should. Would you ask for honor? I just want to be exalted in the eyes of the pastors. 
I just want to be able to, for them to see me who I really am. What would you ask for? I promise they do. Yeah. <laughs> I want to tell you that great authority requires great responsibility. Yeah. The reason why Solomon is asking with a right heart is because he understands the authority that has been placed on his shoulders. He understands the placement that God has put on him to lead his people. What would you ask for if you realized the authority God has placed on you to lead the people under your flock? What would you ask for? Look, great authority requires great purity. You can't have great authority over people if you are not walking in the purity that that requires. And that purity is reflected in what you ask for. Saints, that's the one everybody misses. They're like, oh yeah, I can handle the responsibility. I, I, I'll manage it well, it'll be good. You don't realize that he will not entrust you as a model to others if your heart is not pure enough to be worth modeling. That's good. That's very good. Look, we all feel a little weight. And sometimes what we like to call and ask our bosses for is a day off. Like, I just like a day off. You ever get in a situation where you, you just would ask for any other thing than what God wants you to ask for? I do. Look, not easier times, not a day off, but the ability to do what God says. That's what we should be praying for. Proverbs 16.26 says that the laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. Look, when we are in a position that we can't handle in our own strength and our heart's desires are right, it does something inside of us. When Solomon is in the position, he's like, Lord, these people are so great. This temple is so great I have to build. I have to lead these people to a glorious inheritance. His heart starts getting right. Look, when you realize the weight that's been placed on you, do you tend to pray a little bit more? When you start to feel the weight of your calling on your shoulders, do you start to pray more? Do you start to ask God for the right things? Man, I welcome adversity in my life because it cleans up my prayer life, honestly. (laughs) I find myself praying things that are not God's will. But the moment that suffering, the moment that adversity, the moment the weight of authority is placed on my shoulders, I start to get things a little bit right. Honestly, it's how we get pure. It's by engaging in the work and the load and the weight that God has called us to when it hurts. You want a pure heart? Then do it when it hurts. It's God's opportunity to purify your life. Invite it. Long for it. Look, we need to hunger for what is actually important and not just what we want. Sometimes we have hungering for junk food inside of us. And all it is is just mixing you up for what you actually should be hungering for. The truth is, some of us would be a lot further in our callings. And what God wants to do if our hungers were just cleaned up and purified. What, what starts to distract us is, man, so-and-so got a new truck. I think I need a new truck. But wait a second. I can't get a new truck unless I get a new job. Well, I'm going to have to bounce on the one God told me to stay at and go get a new job. And before you know it, your mind's all mixed up. Wow. Hey, listen, as we transition to verse 13, I want to take a simple example that I know you're going to be familiar with. And think about the purity of it. Eleazar knew he was just a servant. He worked for Abraham. He he was not going to inherit his master's house. Not with God's promises coming true. And yet the man labored to see God's promises come to pass. And he labored to find a wife for his master's son. You realize that master's son took his place and that if he didn't exist, he would have inherited everything? Mm -hmm. His one and only prayer was that God might grant him success for the sake of his master so that God's promises would be fulfilled. Listen, saints, we got too much of our own self in this. 
Even when we think we're not being selfish, when you're trying to accomplish the will of God and it's about you, you're being selfish. Yeah. It's about His promises standing. Our hunger should be for God's glory, not just as some strange little note to justify why we just did something. Yeah. It ought to be a real driving factor. Look, Solomon's, Solomon's desire and Eleazar's desire was to do good for the people. That's what drove them on. This is the finest moment in Solomon's life. And this is the fi finest moment. This is the finest moment in your life. When you're actually fit, when you're actually emptied of all selflessness and you genuinely want to do something good for the Lord's people, that is when the Lord can actually use you. Was he you think once he had everything that he's going to have in the coming chapters and verses? Was he closer to the Lord in this moment when he was crushed yeah. and God came near to him or when he had everything he wanted? Crushed. That's something for us to evaluate. The most shining moment of Solomon's life when, when he was crushed and just hungry for God's glory. Amen. Yeah. Hey, verse 13. Then Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high place of Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting. He reigned over his Saints, it's 917, and we have three more verses with you. The Linton, read it one more time for me. Stand up and read it if you'll help me out tonight. Oh, yeah. Then Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high place of Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel. Saints, we have to get up from the altar and do the work. Amen. We have to get up from the altar tonight and do the work. Yes. I want you to brace with sin that you have not dealt with it at the altar. Yes. But saints, you were never intended to repetitively go to the altar about the same issue. You were never intended to receive a revelation from God and fail to get up and do the work. Listen, he did not linger. He did not ask again. He didn't need 77 confirmations from God to do what he knew was right. right. Him saying it to you once is enough. Somebody say once. Once. Listen in Exodus 14, verse 15. The Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Move out. I've already spoken. Come on. Yeah. Saints, there's an abundance of revelation in this house. There's an abundance of the word of God, but we've got to get up and move out. Amen. Joshua 7, 10 through 11. The Lord says to Joshua, Get up and deal with the problem, son. It's enough. I've spoken to you. My spirit is here. Act and fix the problem. Amen. We do not need more affirmation. We do not need more repetitions. When God spoke to you once, that was enough. Don't test him. Ezra 10.4, they realize that there is a matter that must be dealt with, and the Spirit of God rises up in the assembly of elders, and they say, rise up. It is in your hands. Saints, this evening, we want to tell you that you need to rise up in a radiant righteousness, in a rising righteousness, in a radiant faith. Yeah. All too often, we act like the Lord speaks just for our own enjoyment, just to bless us, just to give us reassurance that He's still with us or that we should keep doing what we're doing. If He spoke to you once and not again for a decade, that would be enough. Solomon understood he was a son soldier with a job to do, so when the Lord spoke, he got up and went to doing it. There's no further interaction. There's no one more confirmation. There's, hey, Lord, please, a third scripture, another fleece. God spoke to him, so he got to work doing what he was called to do. Yeah. Oh, but the task that I have at hand, it's, it's, it's huge. I, I really need to be sure. Saints, he was building the temple of God on earth and was responsible for a nation. Please don't tell me that what you had even compares. <laughs> Listen, our pastors have preached extraordinary messages. We went through a... Cloudy Days message where we celebrated the life of Daniel Smith and we realized what looks cloudy to some men is glory to us. 
I want to tell you, move out from the cloud of despair and into the cloud of glory. Amen. It's time that we get up, that we get up and walk in a radiant hope. Not just know about it, but get up and walk in it tonight. Amen. That we rise, that we rise up in righteousness. Yeah. That we do not allow what yesterday was to become tomorrow. Saints, I want to be increasingly pure. I want to be the righteous son that he's called me to be. And I know you do too. Yeah. But some courage is going to have to rise in your heart. Yeah. Do not accept from your own life the status quo. Do not Amen. accept from your sons the status quo. Amen. Yeah. It is not acceptable that we are the same human beings we were a week ago. Much less worse off. There ought not be a day when we are lingering in despair or lingering in what God has already spoken. Hey, has he spoken to you in this house? Yes! yes. yes. Then we have something to get up and do right now until it is accomplished. Hey, has anybody in this room received a word from the Lord? Yes. yes. Okay, has anybody in this room maybe received five words from the Lord that you can write down? Yes. Has anybody in this room received maybe ten words from the Lord that you can write down? Yes. You've already received more than what is recorded of Abraham getting, and look what he did. Amen. Abraham got up with what he had he did not waver in unbelief. He did not stagger in loss of hope, but he did what God told him to do. We have got to get that inside our soul. If, God, if God speaks to you one time, his words are true and just. That's all you need. You can live 10 years refreshing that same word in your heart and soul. Look, Solomon asked for the ability to lead for the good of the people. Everybody say the good of the people. The good, the good of the people. people. He wanted to do right for the good of the people. And then he gets up and goes to Jerusalem. Verses 1 to 13 are an amazing start to his kingship, aren't they? Yes. Wouldn't you say that's an incredible start to his kingship? Yes. But from verse 14 on, we're going to see a decline in the rest of his, his reign. Of course, there will be no other king as great as Solomon. Of course, he is going to build great things. But his personal state is going to falter a little bit. Linton, would you would you read for us the verse 14 to the end of the chapter? Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with them in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt from Cuba. The royal merchants purchased, from, purchased them from Cuba. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Wow. So saying in chronology, Solomon's life is not declining right now. This is Ezra's perspective. Ezra knows the end from the beginning and what happens with Solomon and his son. And right after the great moment where God spoke to him and empowered him, he begins to let us know what seeds inside of Solomon's heart led him to the place that he finishes it. I assure you right now, the 17 to 18 year old guy, the 20 year old guy, maybe we're a couple more years, 22, had not yet made cedar more common than sycamore fig trees. Had not yet traded that far, but he would. Ezra wants you to know in the very first chapter of Second Chronicles, the things that can corrupt your heart and keep you from finishing better than you started. Yeah. He's cueing us in. Yeah. We have one slide before we continue that I want to show you. This is in the LXX. 
And there was an exodus of the horses through Solomon from Egypt, and by the value of the merchants, so on and so on through the chapter. When the Hebrews were translating this for the Greeks, and they wanted them to understand exactly how many horses, they said an exodus, just to make the point clear. <laughs> we're not talking about like a truckload, we're not talking about herds, we're talking about a mass exodus of horses to Solomon's stables. Good. You understand? Yeah. Look, I'm going to read. Most of you know this, but we're going to dig into it anyway. Because we want to see exactly what kept Solomon from finishing better than he started. In verses 14 through 17, there are very clear seeds like Judah mentioned. Those seeds come from Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 20. Many of you are familiar with this passage, but I want you to see side by side what Solomon did versus what he was warned not to do. You can read it on the screen. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. See, God had a king in mind, and that was David. They asked for a king, and he knew that they were going to ask for a king. So God prepared special circumstances for that king. Because he knew he was coming. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get them. Where did they get the horses? Where did Solomon get his horses? Egypt. God warned them not to go back to Egypt for horses. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Yeah. He must not take many wives. What Solomon do? Take many wives. Yep. Or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What did Solomon do? He made it as common as wood and stone. Man, God gave these specific instructions for the king and the king alone. Specific instructions written down in the word of God to guide the king's heart. There is no way that this escaped Solomon's notice. And just like us, there are so many instructions written down in the law that cannot escape our notice because they're written in the Peshat. Just like this. We might think they're Darashes or Remezes, but they're written in the Peshat. This did not escape Solomon's notice. Seeds were planted that crippled him and caused his heart to go astray. Real quick, how many men have you known that were faithful to the Lord and then they got everything that they ever wanted in their faith quickly dwindled? Many. Yeah. God put this scripture in the text because he knew that if the king got everything he wanted, he might be led astray. God told Solomon that he would give him wealth. God told him he would give him wealth and honor because Solomon had a concern for the people first. That's why God said he would give him those things because his concern was for the people. What happened to Solomon? These wealth, riches, horses took away his desire for the people. And it led his heart astray to where he no longer was concerned for leading the people. He was concerned about his own wealth and honor. Man, it's dangerous to lose your concern for the body and the flock of God. It's dangerous to lose your concern for your children because seeds will be planted into just... Having a better job, a better retirement. 
Solomon was concerned for the people and God told him he would give him wealth and honor. But in the end, those things crippled his desire for the people. Look, you all know what Solomon did with these things in the end. Judah, read verse 18 through 20. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow him carefully, carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Solomon was to have this written and on him at all times. Saints, no matter where you look, the root of every fallen pastor, of every fallen husband that you will ever meet is because they departed from the law. Listen, you can point to a singular woman, you can point to a singular job offer, but it is always because you departed from the law. What does the law do? It inclines the heart. How did Solomon start? With a heart that was pure. Yeah. But as he drifted from the law, his heart drifted from the Lord. Solomon had a great start because he had concern for God's people and his glory. In the end, he disregarded the written word of God and used what God gave him for his own glory instead of the betterment of the people. In the end, Solomon became an arms dealer. He took chariots from Egypt and sent them to kingdoms that would later raid, pillage, and destroy Jerusalem. He armed his enemy. Yeah. Except he wasn't arming his enemy. He was arming his children's enemy. That's right. Think on that for just a moment. Your departure from the law is putting a stick in the hand of the devil to beat your sons with. And then, after becoming an arms dealer, we see the seeds that came to complete fruition later in his life. Listen, what you think is trivial right now, what is not quite lined up with the law, quite lined up with the way of life you see demonstrated in these physical fathers before you, I promise you it will destroy you later. You don't get to just ignore a difference and think it's not going to grow. It will. But the seeds of righteousness that you plant now will grow as well, I promise. You can turn the tide. You can change the way that your heart thinks and feels by applying it to the Word of God. Look, Matthew 6.24, we're going to put it on the screen. No one can serve two masters. You can only serve one. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. But wait a second. I don't hate God. I just really, really like this new job offer. Or I just really, really like the comfort of taking a few days off and not doing what the Lord called me to do. It's not possible to say that you love the Lord and entertain those seeds in your heart. That is called hatred towards God. That is called despising God and being devoted to something else. You cannot serve both God and money. That word in the Greek is mammon. It doesn't just mean physical cash. It means personal gain, your wealth, your comfort, or your own personal kingdom. You can't be invested, no matter if it's a secret, tiny, little way inside your heart, to your own wealth, personal gain, comfort. Now, now, when we read money, we think of money. We're like, I don't want to be greedy. No, I'm talking about the days where you would rather stay home instead of doing what God told you you should be doing. Where you would rather do this instead of fellowship. Where you would rather just take a break from it all. You cannot be devoted to that kind of attitude and that kind of personal attachment to your own comfort. 
Most of us don't think we have these desires. But what do you do when you get an opportunity to afford yourself something? Most of us right now would say, no, I don't have a desire for great wealth and riches. And yet, what do you do in secret when you're afforded an opportunity? You cannot have any desire inside of you other than the desire for God's people to grow. Not yourself, not your own kingdom, but for God's people to grow and to honor the Lord. Look, the worst trap that men and women of God fall into is being deceived into using personal things, to using things that God gave you for the betterment of his people for your own personal gain. If God gave you something, it's not for you. It's for the people. Look, it's not your house. You may have signed the lease, but it is not your house. It's God's house. Yeah. Well, man, I, I don't want to invite people over. The house will get dirty and I got to put the kids to bed. It doesn't matter. It's God's house. It's not your money. So when God asks you to give it to one of his servants or to give it that plunder from a supernatural victory as a supernatural offering for the building of the temple, it's not yours anyway. Amen. He gave it to you. It's not your spouse. Man, we have, oh, I'm, I'm going to dig into that a little bit. It is not your spouse. God gave you that spouse. So if someone comes up and corrects your spouse and you say, hey, that's my wife. Don't talk to her like that. You're just showing that you're embarrassed because you think she belongs to you and you feel like you did a bad job. It is not your spouse. What God says that your spouse should act like, it is his. It belongs to him and it is his word. Look, it's not your car. It's not your car. You got a fancy brand new car? Who gave it to you? What is it supposed to be used for? It's supposed to be used for the Lord. It's not your kids. These are not your kids to do whatever you want with them. These are not your kids to defend from the rest of the body because they're just, I'm insecure about the way they're acting. These are the kids that God gave you and you should be raising them exactly how God wants. Whether that means a word from a brother, whether that means a, a correction, or whether that means God tells you, hey, you're doing this wrong. You're going to have to change this a little bit. These are God's kids he gave you. You might have to get into these next two. Man, get it, Judah. I know you want to. Listen, I got, I got a word of praise. Men like Carlos Reda have intentionally had people in their homes when everyone is sick and no one wants to fellowship. Yeah. Because they know that their house belongs to the Lord. Amen. The things that we reserve that we think we're just protecting, we're actually stealing from the Lord. It's an example worth following. The next one that we have on our list, just as we were talking, is days off. Hear me, single man. Hear me. You think it's your right to use your PTO for a Friday and take a day off. If you're actually working unto the Lord, it better be the Lord that directed you to take a day off. Oh man, I've been working hard Monday through Friday. Yeah, the scripture says that six days a man shall work and one day he shall rest. You're still not measuring up to the biblical standard. Find something to do on Saturday. It's not your job. It's not your career. You work for God. You do not get to choose when and how you work. Our lives are devoted to Him. Hey, but I can't, I can't go to work because I'm sick. Yeah, carry that attitude to the mission field and see what happens. Does God care that you're sick? Listen, if we consider ministry, if the pastors took the same approach that you take to your secular workplace, where would you be? Listen, they're intrinsically linked. There is no difference between working under the Lord while you're working on a roof or you're working in this church. Right. If it's His, 
then you work in the way that he directs it. You yeah. are a son soldier with father commanders over you. Amen. You carry out your orders with diligence. You don't decide when you get sick leave. You don't decide when you're going back for a vacation. He decides it, and you carry out those orders with diligence. You're a mezuzah statement. You don't choose how you walk that out. You just know the principles that he's called you to. You do it where, you do it when, and you do it how, he said. Men like Cody know that they are called to a specific location. Some weekends it's not easy to drive all the way down there and swing a sledgehammer all day and barely see anything move. But that's what he's called to do, and until his father tells him to do something different, that's exactly what he's going to do. Amen. Saints, we have got to divorce ourselves from this mammon idea that it is me, my, my kingdom, my betterment, my riches, my $2 an hour more. It's not yours. It's his. Listen, the church that we are a part of is a house that creates sun soldiers. Not only do we not get to choose the church we're a part of because we're being directed by him, but we don't get to choose what principles we want to obey. We don't get to choose what principles we want to take into our heart, what principles we want to apply between us and our spouse or us and our children. It's not up to you how you raise your children. It's up to the standard that God placed in your life. Look, if you treat it as your career, your calling, your ministry, this is my ministry and it doesn't allow me to do anything else that's uncomfortable, if you treat it that way, if you get called to start a church, you'll start thinking that this is my church. I could do whatever I want with it. And it's not your church. Look, pastors, listen to these teachings just like you do. Pastors, this is not your church. You are directed to do what God tells you to because it's His church. And we're placed as servants over them. Look, when you go out to start, you must know that nothing belongs to you. It is all the Lord's. We have been given these things for the sake of the body. We've been giving these things. If the Lord gives you something, it is for the sake of the body. Have we made that point very clear? Yes. And it is for the sake of His kingdom. Don't be trapped like Solomon into using these things for your own personal gain. That is how you end up like Solomon. You end up supplying God's enemies rather than His people. And if your heart starts right but doesn't finish right, tonight we want you to finish right. We want 10 years down the road when we come to visit each other, you are finishing at the same place you started, and that is the bronze altar. We want you finishing with the same concern of God's people like Solomon had. Solomon started well, but he did not finish well. And i got to tell you, a lot of people I've seen, I can... I've got, I can name probably 30 or 40 people off the top of my head that started very well, but did not finish. Listen, it's hard for us to talk about Solomon's decline so early. But Ezra wanted you to know what got him there so that we could fix it from the beginning. But saints, that's not all that can be seen in these verses. I'm going to ask Brother Linton to read 14 and 16 again for us. And Justin's going to highlight a few things that I bet you didn't see in the passage. Is that worth 10 minutes to you? Yes. yes. Look. We've been setting this up for weeks, Solomon's reign, and it's going to be glorious. The next few weeks, we're going to see some similarities in the temple that are going to blow your mind. We're going to see Solomon's reign, and it is going to blow your mind about what you will experience one day. We've been setting this up for weeks, and we're going to see some amazing parallels between Solomon's reign and the millennial reign. But we're going to show you something you might not be familiar with in this chapter. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with them in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as 
sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cuba. The royal merchants purchased them from Cuba. Now, what we want you to know is that Solomon personally did not end well. Personally, this did not cause a good effect in Solomon's heart. I think the book of Ecclesiastes shows that. But we do still see Solomon acting like the second coming king, Jesus Christ. What is he doing? He's amassing horses and chariots. One thing about Solomon that you have to know historically is he was the first Israelite king to ever have a chariot. The first Israelite king. Now can you imagine the second coming of Jesus Christ, the first king of Israel coming back from the heavens, riding on a steed with his armies with him? What is, Jesus, what is Solomon doing here? He's gathering up warriors and weapons for warfare. You know the interaction with Gehazi and Elijah? So chariots of fire, beginning to see a kind of imagery that Israel has not had, but they now have. One of the things historically Solomon did is he placed these horses and chariots strategically. You want to know the cities that he built up? He built up cities like Megiddo. And he built up cities like Hazor. If you know your eschatology, these cities are sites of major battles that are coming that Jesus will fight at. And Solomon is fortifying these cities, probably because there's a shadow and type at play. This reminds me of Revelation 19.14. He's coming and his armies are with him. He's riding on the clouds and his armies are with him. And where will he fight? Megiddo, Armageddon. Hey, get verse 17 for us, brother. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. Now, interestingly enough, they imported a chariot for Egypt and then they exported them to where? The Hittites and the Arameans. Hey, what do you have to have to, ha to import chariots and horses? A highway. Can anyone, can anyone guess where the Hittites and the Arameans dwell? Assyria. Here you have chariots being exported, or imported rather, from Egypt all the way to Israel and being exported all the way to Assyria. Does that remind anybody of a famous passage? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm just going to read it too. Do it. Isaiah 19:23. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go up to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. And that day Israel will be third along with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, Blessed be my people, Egypt my people. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Even at the end of the days, Israel is his inheritance in the land and the people. He never gave up on them. But we are seeing a picture of what he will do with the nations. Look, it was always God's will for these things to be done through a Davidic son. And Solomon is typifying those things. And it's glorious, right? Yeah. This does not mean that Solomon did it rightly. Solomon did not finish well. Solomon forsook his love for the Lord's people and God's honor and self-sacrificial devotion and instead resorted to self-centeredness and self-glorification. He did exactly what, he, what God intended for the typification of the second coming of Messiah, but he personally did not do it rightly. He ended up supplying his enemies. You may, this goes to show that you may know God's will. You may know what God 
wants you to do, but how you do it is everything. Yeah. Solomon is doing what eventually God's will would be, but he's not doing it rightly. You may know God's will, but how you do it is everything. Knowing God's will doesn't mean that you do whatever comes to your, first, to, to your mind first. Knowing God's will is not the answer. It's having the right heart in applying God's will. Solomon knew God's will, but his heart was wrong. Listen, and in the end, Jesus would do this rightly. Saints, I'm going to read a scripture to you that will help highlight this concept and how we walk in the way that Jesus will fulfill these passages. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Yeah. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Thanks. I wish it said close to the attitude of Christ Jesus. I wish it said similar to the attitude of Christ Jesus. It doesn't. It says the same. Now, while that may not be possible in this moment, we are required, are able, are empowered under the reign of David in this tent where we're fighting the wars of the Lord to be a little bit more that way in the next moment, the next day, our next interaction. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing to take the very nature of a servant. If the king of the universe walked acted and considered himself a servant. Where do we get off considering ourselves anything else? Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Saints, I am deeply moved and thankful for my brother's testimony. But my brother died in relative ease compared to what we were called to. Whatever you are experiencing, whatever you are fearing, it is time that our attitude reflects that of our commanding Father. Yeah. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name. Saints, you want to do well in eternity, you want to be exalted in eternity, then we're going to have to act like Solomon, act like Jesus, recognize that we are but a servant to someone else's people. Yeah. A servant entrusted with His job, with His family, His career, His home, His car. And let our deeds show up with the attitude of our heart. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. He is named become like God. I want you to be a good imager of Christ. Amen. I want your name to be like his name. Yeah. This is the pathway that we accomplish this. That, it, that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and upon earth and under the earth. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Saints, you want a memorial in heaven like Cornelius, do good to the saints and endure hardship like a good soldier. Amen. You want your name spoken of in heaven, then act like Christ. Whether you are under the earth, you're on the earth, or you're in the heavens, you're going to answer to that name. Amen. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look, Jesus will rightfully build this highway because he humbled himself. Solomon preemptively tried to build this highway, but he did not humble himself. He did not stay humble. He did not stay at that altar. Jesus did not fail in the same way. Solomon's, Solomon chose to exalt himself with the things that he got, and therefore, personally, he did not finish as good as he started. I want to read to you another passage, and then we're going to close. Revelation 5, 5-8 says, 
Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus will build that highway rightly. Jesus will have the authority to build that highway because he was slain. Not because he exalted himself, because he humbled himself. Because he came like a servant. That is how he will build it rightly. Solomon. Solomon gave way to the seeds in his heart and that crippled him in the end. He preemptively built that highway, but he did not do it rightly. Look, the lamb that is slain is the one with the authority. Come on, does anyone need to have a slaying experience in here? If you want the authority to build this thing rightly, you're going to have to go through a slaughter of coming to the altar and repenting of your own sin, your own desire to want to do things out of your own wealth. You're going to have to lay it down. The lamb that is slain is the one that has the authority to build these things, not the one that preserves his life. Jesus sacrificed to build God's temple. Will you? Tonight, will you sacrifice? Will you lay down your pride? Will you lay down your want to build your own kingdom? Will you lay down those seeds that are trying to creep in? And I know they're there. I know there's been seeds there that are trying to get you to focus on so many other things. And they're trying to get you to exalt yourself. And you don't know why things aren't going your way. It's because those seeds are trying to manipulate your thoughts and acting in a way other than Jesus acted. That is how you end your race, not finishing well. A couple things as we pray. Listen, we are called to a great work. The vast majority of you are in love with Jesus Christ and in love with where God has put you because your heart reflects Him. The majority should not be bullied by the few malcontents that are in a body that is otherwise righteous. Set a standard and expect the standard to be upheld. Relate to your fathers like God intends for you to relate to your fathers and expect that those on your left and right do. Demonstrate that you have faith in God's process. In addition to that, let your service, let your heart, which the two are intrinsically linked, be representative of that of Christ, of one that only wants to build the kingdom of God. And I promise you will be successful to the end. We're going to have to do this a thousand times, but our words now saying, I will sacrifice like he did, are not sufficient when we know the answer. We have to walk in it. And we're going to have to walk in it again and again if you want to finish your race like Elder Charlie. I desperately do, and I know I'm not there yet. We're not hammering you. We're inviting you to do what we are doing. What is cutting my soul. What I am bleeding about. What I realize is not there and I need to get it right. Will you stand and begin to pray with us? Look, it's... We're two hours and 20 minutes in. Father, only one, I thank you for the opportunity to stand here in front of you. Sacrifice for your name. Jesus, that your kingdom 